Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven Entertainment Radio Network. In the future, none of you are heroes. You're legends. Get driven. Stay driven. I know it's a little bit early, but uh, let's talk some mythology, huh? Why not? So today we're going to be talking about the Morrigan. For those of you unfamiliar with her, she's particularly popular amongst neo-pagan movements today. And she's got an incredibly rich history, an incredibly rich lineage that she can trace back all the way back to the Copper Age, depending on who you ask. So let's get right into it. Who is or what is the Morrigan? Well, the Morrigan is a goddess, specifically uh, traces herself to the Celts. Um, She goes back to, again, depending on who you ask, depending on uh, what variations of the tales you go back to, uh, she can trace her lineage all the way back to the Copper Age. She was the dominant goddess of the Celts. Uh, She's called the Great Goddess uh, by some. The Morgan, uh, her name itself, It's particularly interesting. It's split into two different roots. Uh, First is Morugu, uh, which uh, is interestingly enough uh, split again into the word more, which means great. Uh, Variations of the name uh, include being referred to as phantom or scroll, Uh, but most scholars today would say that their name means great. Uh, It's a great thing about uh, dead languages. A lot of the words mean a lot of different things. Uh, and then gone uh, would be goddess, um, mother. Um, but uh, if we split the other part of her name, Regan, it means queen. Uh, so great queen or phantom queen, however you'd like to slice it. Either way, she is associated with a number of interesting things. And she appears prominently in many different Celtic myths, uh, including but not limited to the story of Cúlcalain, uh and the story of the god Lu. Uh, she appears in the Labor Gabala Eren, which is the Book of Invasions, uh, which is dated back to about 1150 uh, CE. And she's, again, she, she appears prominently in, in uh, several legends. Uh, she appears in the Tainbo Regenmon, uh, the Ulster Cycle. Uh, so she's, she's quite quite the popular goddess. She is often referred to as a goddess of war, battle, uh, the cycle of life and death, and is associated with wisdom, prophecy, magic, the land, 
uh, nature, witches, and animals. So she's got uh, quite a lot under her dominion. Uh, most recently, though, she's come to be identified specifically with the concept of sovereignty, uh, as she is a goddess of land uh, and of uh, living things, as well as the goddess of uh, the cycle of life and death. Uh, she's been sort of associated with the concept of sovereignty. And when I say sovereignty, I mean lordship over things. So, um, you really want to dig deep into who she is. Uh, it's important to understand the Celtic culture uh, from which she springs from. So early Celts, they idolized warfare. Uh, their people were incredibly warlike. They not only fought against one another, they fought against their neighbors, uh, most of the time over small spits of land throughout uh, what we would now consider to be parts of Western Europe uh, and later Ireland and, and Britain, uh, the Isles of Britain. And so uh, throughout uh, the history of the Celts, uh, they were increasing, they had been pushed increasingly farther out of Europe uh, by expanding empires such as the Romans, uh, and eventually uh, they're pushed even further by the migrations of other people such as the Saxons, the Angles, the Jutes, um, and a number of other, you know, warring Germanic tribes in the region. So um, they spent a lot of their time fighting. Uh, and so it comes as no surprise. It should come as no surprise to anybody uh, that because they spent a lot of their time fighting, uh, they kind of grew to sort of accept warfare as a natural part of life. Now, whether or not uh, all Celts just idolized and absolutely worshipped war is a matter of debate. Uh, but what we do know is that the Celts, uh, were an incredibly militaristic people, whether that was by choice or by necessity, uh, you know, who could really say. Um, but uh, it is well documented that both men and women uh, were warriors up until about 697 CE, often fighting in battle, uh, and the women, them, women especially fighting in battle uh, and helping the wounded, protecting their families and their land, uh, which the Celts believed uh, was feminine. The land itself was feminine and a dominant aspect of the Celts' pride, uh, which was reflected within the Morrigan. Now, the Morrigan first appears again in the Labor uh, Gabala Ren, which is the Book of Invasions, and they date this uh, text to about 1150 CE. Uh, it's a pseudo-narrative of the history of Ireland, and it includes the arrival of the Celtic gods, uh, who are known as the Tuatha de Danann in Ireland, uh, and their later battle with the indigenous gods, uh, who some call the Fearblogs, uh, or, uh, depending on uh, your translations of texts, they are also in, referred to as the Fomorians. Now, interestingly, uh, these stories were not really written down by the Irish pagans uh, or the Celts, um, because they didn't believe in really writing down their history. They took pride in the oral tradition, uh, in songs and in stories that they passed down from generation to generation. So these stories uh, are later recorded by priests, uh, Christian priests, uh, interestingly enough, which is a little ironic since they were, uh, you know, kind of st trying to, because once Christianity gets to Ireland and to the Isles of Britain, uh, they kind of try to stamp out all of most every bit of paganism that they can. So it's interestingly enough, 
uh, a point of irony that they thought these stories were worth preserving. Now, um, again, the Celts prized oral tradition and memorization. Uh, they believed it was an art form of storytelling, and so it was the uh, so it was um, it's kind of a good thing that the Irish Christian monks. Uh, who were their descendants, preserved what they believed to be historical accounts. Now, the Morgan's origins can be traced back quite a long ways. Uh, some people would trace it back to the megalithic cult of the mothers Matronas Edesis and Desit, uh, who appeared as triple goddesses from narrative texts written by monks sometime between the 8th and 12th centuries after Christianity had replaced many of the pagan faiths as the dominant religion within Ireland. Now, uh, Mor- the Morrigan's connection to battle and why Mor- the Morrigan is important to the Celts and their culture becomes evident in these texts, although it's not all that she represents. The Morrigan's name in history, as I mentioned, has various spellings and translations, uh, but in Irish her name was originally Mor Rio Gain, uh, meaning Great Queen. Uh, quite an interesting spelling. Uh, she's, her name also was alternatively translated to the Phantom Lady or Phantom Queen. Now, um, scholars today uh, believe that the most accredited and accurate meaning to the name Morgan is Great Queen. Uh, the meaning connects her to sovereignty as she was very much revered. She is considered to be one of the more popular uh, deities of the ancient peoples of Europe. Now, Uh, It was common within Celtic culture for a goddess to be conveyed in different forms uh, and to possess many attributes to further illustrate her qualities. The Morrigan, uh, also referred to as the Morugu, uh, was a triad of goddesses sometimes depicted as sisters and at times also depicted as interchangeable. Uh, So the Morrigan included three different facets. The first is Babd, the second is Macha, and the last is Nimon. And occasionally uh, there was another uh, aspect referred to as Anu, um, who may have been uh, the crone aspect of Bab, but we won't get into that. Now, depending on the text, Bab, Maka, and Nimon might have been the same entity, uh, but most people just assume that these three are just simply three aspects of the one, which is Morgan. Uh, Bab is, is the war goddess associated with battle, destruction and death and often appeared over battle as a hooded crow um, or ran alongside warriors disguised as a gray wolf. Now, Babs was connected to rebirth as a watcher of the cauldron of regeneration in the other world. And she was also a witch, a sorceress and prophetess who saw foresaw the future. So when Babs appears to heroes uh, within these early uh, Celtic texts and Celtic stories, uh, this is the aspect of the Morgan that has this otherworldly knowledge. Uh, she is the one that people are seeking knowledge from, but also uh, at times staying quite clear of because she's quite terrifying. Uh, and then we have Maka, um, the root for her name is Mog, translated. Uh, this refers means specifically field, plain, uh, or pasture. The name connects and gives uh, her, the Morrigan power over the sacred land, over horses, uh, wealth, uh, power, and symbolizing the elite, the most elite among warriors. She was connected to fertility by the land and by horses and cursed the male red branch warrior to suffer nine days of birth pangs when forced to run a race. 
As part of the Trinity, she rains down fire and blood on her enemies. Now, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the Tain Bowl Kulain, uh, there is a story. This is a story involving the great epic Irish hero Cool Kulain, uh, who defends Ulster from invasion from the evil Queen Mebd. Uh, and Mebd uh, is coming to take the land away from the Ulstermen who are incapacitated because they managed to somehow insult one of the aspects of the Morgan, and it was believed that they had insulted Maka. Um, it, depending on the translation of the text that you examine, they insulted her, uh, and after challenging her to a contest, they insulted her uh, because they thought she was too feminine to win the contest, uh, and apparently her time came to her at the time of the month uh, that afflicts women came to her in the process of this race. It became a mockery in the race. And as a consequence, the Morgan cursed the men to suffer nine days uh, that they had to suffer, uh, depending on this telling the story, nine days. And in some cases it was even longer birth pangs. Uh, basically they had man periods uh, as part of the, so she she uh, cursed them with man periods, and only Cool Kalane, who was under the cutoff age at the time, uh, was uh, immune from this. Unfortunately, uh, for his enemies. Now, the third aspect of the Morgan is known as the Mon, and her name translates to panic, frenzy, or venom. Uh, or the word venomous. Now, also, she, this is also a deity of battle, death, and destruction. Uh, she appears on the field as a carrion crow. Neiman was a prophetess, and her battle cries meant death would soon follow. By shrieking furiously, she intimidated, panicked, and confused soldiers on the battlefield into dying of fright or mistaking their own comrades for enemies and killing them. Uh, this aspect is often connected to the role of the of another legend, the Banshee, those of you who aren't familiar with Banshee, the Banshee is a spirit uh, that shrieks underneath your window and foretells the coming of a loved one's death. Uh, so these are the three aspects of the Morgan. Now, there are a lot of stories of the Morgan. Uh, they change depending on the source. Uh, she's first seen in the Battle of Moitura between a race of gods called the Tuatha de Non. Uh, these are the invading gods, the liberators of Ireland, uh, and their followers, and the indigenous uh, Fyrbolgs, or the Fomorians, led by the demon king, Balor, of the evil eye. Now, before the battle erupts, uh, the Morrigan cries out doom and uses sorcery against the Tuatha Dé Nan to rain down fire and blood so that they could not move for three days and three nights. Uh, thus, she uh, sort of turns the tide of the battle. Um, then she appears again in the Ulster cycle. Um, she appears in the Tainbo Reganma, uh, the cattle raid of Regamon, uh, which is a body of Irish mythology. Morgan appears to Cúchulain, whom she has appeared to in several different guises throughout the story, and finds her. He finds her stealing one of his cows. Uh, she does not recognize yet he does not recognize her and becomes angry, insulting her, shape-shifting into a crow. He then recognizes her uh, and acknowledges he would not have insulted her had he known, uh, yet she prophesies his death in battle, which later comes to pass. Uh, so he insults her. 
So a little rule of thumb for everybody, if somebody appears to you mysteriously out of nowhere that would not ordinarily uh, pose a threat to you and you insult them and they shapeshift, uh, good rule of thumb is just get the hell out of there because uh, they're probably going to prophesy your death and it's probably going to come true. But if you're lucky, you might not hear that prophecy and it might not happen. So good good rule of thumb there. Uh, always, always uh, avoid insulting old women. Uh, you never know what will happen. So Morgan appears to Cool Kalein as well as a young woman. Uh, in some telling, she appears as a hag. She offers him love and her aid in battle, but he rejects her offer. And in response, she intervenes in his next combat, first in the form of an eel, which trips him, then as a wolf, which stampedes cattle across a ford at him, and finally as a white, red-eared heifer leading the stampede, just as she had warned in their previous encounter. Uh, in Koth, in the Kothmeg Torade, or Sam, or on Samhain, or Sawain, depending on how you like to uh, spin that word, Morrigan has an encounter with the Dagda, who is the High King of the Tuatha Dé Nan, uh, before the battle against the Fomorians. When he meets her, she is washing battle clothes while standing with one foot on either side of the River Unius, uh, and they decide to get busy. Uh, she then promises to summon the magicians of Ireland to cast spells on behalf of the Tuatha Dé Nan and to destroy Indec uh, or Baller, the Fomorian king, depending on which variation of the tale you're reading. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dagda is the sun god uh, in some in some tellings of the story, but he's also referred to as the king of the Tuatha Dé Nan. He's sort of a Zeus-like figure. Um, and, of course, he and the Morrigan, therefore, are kind of on even ground at this point. Now, Morgan is primarily, the Morrigan is primarily associated with battle, bloodshed, and destruction. Uh, she was such a powerful symbol of life and rebirth that the Celts believed she could revive their dead soldiers to fight again. Uh, so it was within the rights of many early Celts uh, that there were rights that they practiced in full belief that the Morrigan would raise their dead. The severed heads on the battlefield were called the Mast of Maka, uh, which is literal, a literal translation of the Harvest of Maka. Uh, the ground was considered sacred after battle, and soldiers would leave until the next day so that the Morrigan could gather the souls of the undisturbed. Uh, as a scavenger bird, she was an omen of war, both as a symbol and with prophecy, feeding on bodies and gathering souls, terrorizing armies in, and terrorized armies into dying of fear with her frightful and shrieking cries. Now, the Morrigan was clearly a, is clearly a goddess who embodied a strong woman in the Celtic love of warfare. She used spells and incantations or magic and sorcery as her primary weapon. In tales, she is also said to have fought alongside warriors in the battlefield. Uh, in earlier Celtic accounts, she uh, wore a headdress that was of a she sometimes bore a head that was of a crow, a raven, or a vulture, although she is transformed into a white cow with red ears, an eel, an old hag, a young woman. She's also uh, known as Taliak or Crone, uh, and she who grants sovereignty or takes it away from kings. Uh, so many Celtic kings often uh, 
attempted to claim that the Morgan had chosen them, that that's the reason they were king. This was a way of legitimizing themselves. Early, sort of an ancient version of rule by divine right. Kind of a kind of a nifty little thing there. Now, it's speculated that the Morgan may have been the daughter of of another set of gods who appear earlier in the copies of the Labor Gabala Ren, the Book of Invasions. Um, and those gods were Delbath and Aramis. Um, they were said to have had three daughters named Babs, Maka, and Inand. In the Book of Leinster, Inand is also known, known as Morigu, while in the Book of Fermoy version, Maka is identified with Morgan. In addition, Morgan may have been one of Dagda's wives and has sons. Um, she's there's no real evidence of how the Morgan was worshipped in her time, uh, but because she was associated with Sawain, what we would now call Halloween, it is thought that her biggest devotions came during this time. Uh, most of her worship may have been on the battlefields before, during, or after warfare as well, being that she was a goddess of war. Uh, we do know uh, very little today about the Celts. We we know because they're not really a culture that wrote a lot, uh, we've only got uh, sort of hand-me-down stories that are later recorded and translated by Christian priests. Uh, so we, we don't quite as much as we would like from them. But we do know that uh, based on Roman accounts of their encounters with the Celts, the Celts were known to collect the heads of their enemies. Uh, they were known to headhunt. Uh, they did this. Uh, they would often uh, collect heads as trophies. They believed that the head was the seat of a man's power. Uh, the head was the place where the soul resided. Uh, and so because of this, we do know that uh, those men who were probably worshiping uh, this god, the Morrigan, most likely took these heads not only as not only as trophies, but probably for some other uh, means, perhaps as a tribute to this goddess. Now there are several sites that are associated uh, with the goddess Morgan in Northern Ireland, based on some of the texts we have. One place is a county known as Armagh, which translates as uh, Maka's Height or Maka's High Place. Uh, the Dashish. Na Morignu, uh, the two breasts of the Morgan, are a pair of hills in County Arm, which was considered to be the capital on Ulster in the Chronicles, uh, the capital of Ulster in the Chronicles of the Ulster Cycle. In the County of Luth, there is a field known as the Gorchnar Morgan, which is Morgan's field, uh, which was said to be given to her by the Dagda. Uh, Boa Island, which is the largest island in northern uh, in Northern Ireland, it was named after Bab. In addition, uh, inscriptions invoking Cahabduva, the Battle Raven, uh, uh, may have been found in the Drome region of France. Um, now, according to many of the texts that we ha- the the few texts that we do have, um, the Morgan did possess weapons. She's often seen. Uh, she's often described as having spears. Uh, she uses sorceries. She carries a shield. She can shapeshift. She has swords. Uh, she's associated with death, rebirth again, the, life, the cycle of fate, uh, the cycle of life and death, fate, battle, skulls, blood, prophecies, uh, and sovereignty as well as land. 
she has many animal totems that have been associated with her, predominantly scavenger birds such as crows, ravens, uh, vultures. She's also been associated with eels, wolves, cows, horses. Um, she's got many uh, different colors that have been associated with her, red and black, white and purple, dark blue, um, lots of lots of good stuff all associated with her. Um, now, modern-day pagans today, neo-pagans, uh, they have festivals for, depending on what practices they have. Some some have the Feast of the Morgan, which takes place on January 7th. Others uh, worship, her, worship her around Samhain, which is close to Halloween. Uh, she's celebrated during the uh, fall equinox. She's been uh, she's she's incredibly popular goddess uh, amongst the Celts has been for uh, was for many 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 years uh, and now she's become refocused she she's become refocused uh, so to speak the she's kind of been revived reborn uh, under the guise of neo paganism now neo pagans believe. And I've talked about this on my show before. I talked about Wicca. And within Wicca, there is this belief in the triple goddess and the horned god who is her consort. Um, now, the triple goddess uh, is often in reference to a, a, a divine feminine, which, is, which follows the cycles of the moon. But it's also traced quite closely to the Morgan, who is uh, a triple goddess, uh, who predates... You know, many, many more modern religions that we have today. And the Morgan provides a very easy stand-in. Uh, for the Wicca, for people that practice Wicca, uh, the Triple Goddess takes on three forms. There is the mother, there is the maiden, and there is the crone. Incidentally, the Morgan is split uh, into three aspects herself. She appears as a young maiden, appeared as a hag, and she has appeared as a uh, blind uh, old woman. So she's also appeared as, depending on the, the, the versions of the story, she, she is a mother at some points. Excuse me. She's a mother as well, uh, mother to the children of Dagda. Uh, the triple goddess uh, within Wicca and within many new, other neo-pagan religions who believe in the triple goddess represent three phases within life that we all have. Now, I know people, somebody's going to say, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a woman, so how could I be a mother, a maiden, and a crone? Well, there are three parts to our, there are three aspects within our lives uh, that we all reach. So if you are, a, when you are young, when you're a young whippersnapper, you are a maiden, you're innocent, you're pure. You don't know, uh, you know, the deep secrets of the world. That is the aspect of you that is the maiden, that innocence that you have when you're young. In your youthful days, you don't know the dark parts of, of adulthood. You don't know about, you don't, you don't have any real connection to carnal knowledge. You don't have any connection to uh, complex thoughts. You know, you're not you're not corrupted yet by, uh, you know, the many philosophies that exist that we later encounter and grapple with throughout our lives. You're not concerned with your mortality. 
That is the part of your life that in which you are the maiden. You're innocent. You are uncorrupted. You're unsullied. You've not been you've not been tainted by the world. Then you reach the point of the mother. Now the mother represents that change in all of our lives, in which we reach a point of of intermediate knowledge, where we've moved beyond maidenhood. We are now we're no longer the young you know young youngsters uh, that we once were. We've got we're not wide eyed and, and innocent. We've been exposed to information that we now have to grapple with. Reality set in. The world is no longer a fantasy. The veil has been lifted, and we can see things for what they are. We have no choice but to now come to grips with uh, the challenges of day-to-day life. So, once we, so the mother aspect uh, within these neo-pagan religions represents that point in our lives where we've now got to be. Uh, where we finally uh, lifted our our veil, we've become more aware of our surroundings. We we we're ready to to grapple with with more complex thought. We're ready to uh, take steps within our lives to become wiser, and and we're ready to start learning from mistakes. And then the crone. The crone is that final part of our life. And no, I don't mean death. The crone represents that final step in our, in our journey, in our journey. And whether that's a spiritual journey, whether that's a uh, journey, you know, as far as mature, you know, a, a physical journey of, of growth and maturity, whether it's spiritual maturity, you know, Maturity within relationships, maturity as far as age, the crone represents that level of maturity that you've reached. You're older now, you're wiser, you've learned from mistakes that you've made, you've been around long enough to make those mistakes, you've learned from them, you're moving forward, you've got experience, and now uh, you've reached the point where you can impart that knowledge onto someone else who's at a different stage in their life than you are. So these represent, so the Morgan is also a convenient representation of the very different walks we take in life. When, when we look at the Morgan and we even look at this simplified version of the Morgan, this more modernized, more, version of the Morgan that we have, the triple goddess, we're looking at, you, you could say you're looking at the phases of the moon, but let's just say we're looking specifically at the representation of the different phases we have in our lives. When we're maidens, again, we're at that point in our lives where we're, we're fresh, we're young, we're eager to, to receive knowledge, we're eager to seek it. This is when you're a maiden, you're eager to go out and learn. You're eager to go out and experience. You want to taste. You want to see. You want to embrace. You want to breathe everything in. You want to take all of it in. You're you're living in the moment. You're living in the now. You're not thinking about consequences. Now, when you're the mother, it's time to deal with consequences. Now you've reached a point in your life where. The choices you made in your maidenhood, in your youth, 
they're starting to wear and tear on you. Now you've got to recognize that you've made uh, choices in your youth that are now going to affect you in the long run. This is the time in your life in which you've got to rise to the challenge and and start moving forward towards towards becoming a crone. And when you move towards becoming a crone, you're not only going to learn from the mistakes you've made, you're going to make all new mistakes, but you're going to learn from them as you go. And you're going to time to really understand and enjoy life's experiences. So it's not just enjoying the temporary pleasures now. It's understanding and appreciating the journey as you move forward. That's when you've reached the level of mother in your life, that level of within your spiritual life, within your own, uh, within your own life, that you have reached the point where now you can learn to appreciate the experience. You can learn to enjoy the ride. When you're young, sure, you're not really thinking about it. You're not really appreciating the things that you have, right? In your youth, you don't really appreciate the fact that you can kind of just go run and eat whatever you want and, and just, you know, live life recklessly, right? You, you, you grab life, you grab the bull by the horns and you've got the world by the haunches and you can just do whatever you want. Uh, once you start to get older, you realize that you never really had much control over the world around you after all, and it's time to wake up and realize it's time to get a job, time to do big kid things, time to do those adult things that mommy and daddy have been doing the whole time while you were out grabbing the bull by the horns. Now it's time to step forward and become your own person. This is the point in which you have achieved a, le- a level of spiritual maturity, a level of mental maturity in which now you realize now it's time to pick myself up and become my own person. And then we reach the final stage within life in which you've become the crone. And the crone is the person who's lived life's experiences, seen what life's got to offer, and now they're ready. They are ready to show the up-and-coming generations, the maidens and the mothers, what life has to offer and to guide them on their way. That doesn't necessarily mean that the crone has to steer everyone else's ship. It simply means that the crone is now in a position to see people where they are and help them where they are because they've experienced what those people have already experienced. Now they're at that position, that level of spiritual or mental maturity in which they now can say, okay, you know, this is, this is what I would suggest you do to let, you know, this is the person you go to for wise counsel. Uh, You know, we, the, the, the interesting thing that I find uh, when I look at tea such as the Morgan is how many things that we can use the Morgan as a stand in for, you know, we, we, we look at the fact that she's a battle goddess or, uh, you know, been referred to as the huntress of souls or the mother of witches or the wild queen. And we think, Oh man, those are some cool titles. That's pretty awesome. Uh, she's a goddess of warfare. Uh, she steals people's souls. That's pretty sweet. Uh, but I think it's more interesting that 
when we consider the fact that the Morgan can represent these three points within our lives. Uh, these three points within our lives that chart our progress through life. We have these figures be representative of the many parts of our lives, the the steps within life that we take uh, to move forward and to mature. So this is this is what makes uh, entities. This is what makes uh, stories and mythology such as this so important. Is we can learn so much uh, from these things, and we can use them for so many things. Uh, but I want to get into another. You know, I, I want to get into another uh, really interesting aspect of the Morgan that we kind of skirted over, uh, and and I want to go back concept of of being a huntress of souls. What does that mean exactly? If we look at the, the many texts involving the Morgan, when we say that she's the huntress of souls, what does that mean? I mean, she's, a, this is, we've already, we're already looking at a goddess. It's got a, lot, a great many titles, uh, but the hunters of souls, huntress of souls sounds very disturbing. Uh, when you think about it, but in actuality, uh, this is a title that uh, actually probably filled people with a great deal of comfort. When you consider the fact that we, uh, as people, are often very concerned with our mortality, we're very concerned about what's going to happen when we die. Right uh, now, you know, there are the there are the nihilists uh, that are going to say, uh, "Well, you know, who cares what happens when you die?" There's 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 many different you know people uh, groups of people out there that are going to say ah well it doesn't really matter what happens to the die who cares uh, you'll be dead whatever uh, but thousands and thousands of years they were very concerned about what the heck was going to happen to them when they died and the Morgan had answers uh, for the Celts about what would happen when they died the Morgan claimed the souls of mighty warriors and took them to the other side uh, she took them to the realm of the spirits, uh, you know, the land of the fair people, the land of the fair folk. She ensured that they made it on their journey to the land of plenty. Now, the Huntress of Souls only came to take the souls of the fallen, those people who fell gloriously in battle. The Morgan didn't simply come and take any old soul. She wanted the souls of warriors. She's a warrior goddess. Uh, she wanted strong souls. Now, does this make it, you know, that this makes it seem like, oh, you know, the Morgan's only going to help the, the warriors. But she's, she is that sort of passageway between this life and the next. Uh, she is the inevitable thing that is particularly interesting about one of the things that is particularly interesting about the Morgan when she's talked about in this capacity is that uh, it's the suggestion with her is that she's inevitable. She always wins Uh, much like death always gets you. She always wins in every scenario in which people 
bet with the Morgan or gamble with the Morgan. We have Pool Kalane, uh who uh, denies the Morgan her, you know, his affections. She demands, you know, she she sees Pool Kalane, she wants him. She sees he's handsome and young and virile, and she says, "Cool, Kalane, you're a sexy guy. I'm a goddess. This is happening. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna love me. You're gonna be my new boyfriend. Uh, and if you're not, then you're gonna die. And I'm gonna get you anyway." And Cool Kalane basically spits the offer back in her face and says, "That ain't happening. I'm Cool Kalane, baby. I do what I want." Don't you don't you know me? Don't you see what I do? I kill guys all the time. I do whatever I want to do. Uh, and if you read the Tame Bull Kulane, uh, which is essentially the epic of Cool Kulane, uh, though it carries you know covers a few different heroes here and there, it's spatterings of stories, but predominantly it follows Cool Kulane's life and death. Uh, but throughout it, Cool Kulane is basically this Herculean figure. He does what he wants to do, kills whoever he wants to. Uh, you know, he doesn't care about the consequences. Uh, he's a larger-than-life figure. Pearson says, listen, you're going to do what I say. I want you. You're mine. You're coming with me. You don't come with me. I'm going to get you in the end anyway. Kukulain says, that ain't happening, baby. I do what I want. And she basically prophesizes death. She says, well, you're going to die. This is when you're going to die. This is exactly when you're going to die. I know you're going to die. And when you do... I'm going to be there. And that's precisely what happens. He dies, and despite the fact that Cool Kalane, you know, sort of rebelliously dies, uh, he goes out on his feet. Uh, you know, he, he refuses to be cut down, refuses to let the men just, you know, kill him, you know, and, and, and beat him to the ground. He doesn't want to be defeated. His pride won't let him fall to the ground. He, he resolves to die standing on his feet. He ties himself to a large pillar of stone. Uh, and, you know, kind of swats at these guys until he eventually bleeds to death. But in the end, the Morgan comes, and she takes him. She takes Cool Kalane away, and she tells him what I want. I always win. So in this way, the Morgan represents inevitability. She always wins, just like death always comes in the end. And while some people might find that disconcerting, I think the early Celts would have found it rather comforting to know that there was going to be certainty. And the certainty was that if they exonerated themselves well uh, in battle and they defended their land uh, with all their heart, mind, and strength, that the Morrigan would come, that she would come, she would take them. Uh, their, their their staunch belief that even she might even have the power to raise their their warriors from their graves to fight once more, their staunch belief in her um, lay in these stories, these stories of a goddess who would who had power, who had dominion over all over land, over over the souls of mortals, who had dominion over magics they couldn't possibly uh, fathom or comprehend. We look at the early stories of the Morgan and her involvement with the with the Faborians and the, her involvement with the Fearbolgs and her involvement with the Tuatha Dé Nan. In the first battle between these gods and basically the equivalent of Irish Titans, the, the gods lose. And why do they lose? Well, they lose because the Morgan intervenes. 
This one entity intervenes in a battle between immortal gods. And the good guys lose because she wills it to be so. She makes it so. She played her game. Didn't matter how, uh, you know, and and we, we read these stories of gods such as Lu and Nuwata, and they are incredibly powerful warriors. They do what they want to do. I mean, they've got mystical weapons, uh, swords made out of pillars of light uh, that lay waste to mountains. These guys, they're no slouches when it comes to battle, but this one figure, the Morgan, turns the tide. She rains down holy hell on these guys and, and ends the battle against them. She decides who wins and who loses. She decides who becomes king and who doesn't become king. She decides who lives and who dies, and she decides when these things happen. So the Morgan features so prominently in these stories. Who do the Tuatha Dé Nan come to in the second battle with the Fomorians? They come to the Morgan. They don't make the same mistake twice. The Morgan intervened against them. Why in the first battle? Well, if we read the text, we know that the Morgan intervenes against the Tuatha Dé Nan initially because they don't come to her. They don't ask for her help. And she feels disrespected. She's this powerful entity. We got it. We can beat these we can beat these Titan guys that have been ruling everything for since the beginning of time, we got this. We're not going to ask for an ace in the hole. We're just going to take take it to these guys. We got this. And she turns the tide of the battle against them because she feels like it, because she feels slighted, because she feels disrespected. They don't make the same mistake twice. They come back the second time around and say, listen, we are not making the same mistake. Uh, what can you do for us? What can I do for you? She said, well, I'm going to drive these guys crazy. The Morgan enters this last battle with on, on the side of the Tuatha Dé Nan. She drives the, the Fomorians mad. They attack each other. They kill each other. They retreat. Some of, them, some of them flee in fear. Some of them lay on each other. Some of them uh, kill themselves, all because of her magic, and they win the day. Now, if you read these stories, it sounds like there's this epic battle between godlike forces. But if you think about it, if you listen, if you read specifically in the text involving the Morrigan, her impact in both battles decides the outcome. She's the ultimate puppet master in these in these games for power. She determines the victors. And that she determines who's defeated. True aspect of her is this huntress of souls. She determines when souls will be claimed. She determines when you lose your soul. She determines when you fall. And where you fall and how you fall. It's all up to her. That's what truly makes the Morgan a terrifying figure to behold, is that she knows exactly when you're going to die because she decides when you're going to die. 
And if there's one thing that we now today would probably find most disturbing is that we're ever at any point in our lives out of control of our lives. We don't want to live in a world in which we think we're not in control of every aspect of our lives. Now, the rebellious side within human beings that exist, that more than likely existed during this time, I'm sure it did within the human spirit, there is this idea of rebellion, that we must rebel against this, against constructs, against, against the rules and regulations and, and things that limit us. We don't want to be limited. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, we're always finding things that limit us that we don't want to limit us. And this is a limiter, to be sure. The idea that you don't have control over your own destiny uh, is rather disconcerting. That's probably what makes the Morgan such an awe-inspiring figure, though, is that she knows the very moment you're going to die, the very moment you're going to fall and and, and be hers, and she's going to be there, ready to claim you. And then we have this aspect of sovereignty. This, this is partic- one of the things that I think uh, is another, yet another key facet of hers that's, that's absolutely fascinating. And it's something that's just, you know, more recently been kind of looked at by uh, neo-pagan groups uh, and there's even, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this. I'd like to go ahead and mention it. Uh, there's actually an order, uh, actually the Order of Bards, Ovats, and Druids uh, has an entire uh, collection of literature dedicated to the Morgan. Uh, but I'd also be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that there is actually a priesthood, a polytheist priesthood of the Morgan uh, called the Koro. Kathu Badua priesthood. Uh, they have a website as well, uh, korupriesthood.com. Uh, and they dedicate themselves to worshiping the Morrigan. Uh, and I'd like to go into some, and, and before I, before I go into this, uh, spiel on sovereignty. I'd like to take a look at some of the things that they believe are the core, our core values. Uh, this is just uh, to give you guys further insight into just how influential this figure has been. You know, you, you mentioned the Morgan now, and people are like, huh, what, who? Uh, if you're not a person that's familiar with uh, these mythologies, you're probably just sitting around like, who, who the hell is this figure? Why is this person even important? Why is this goddess important? Uh, so, so here's the core values of this priesthood. Uh, the first is sovereignty and the stone. Now, sovereignty in its historical context, uh, and they rightly define this, is understood as power arising uh, from nature itself, from the identity of the land and its people. Sovereignty is a numinous power within the land, which is vested at the person of the ruler by the source of the power personified as the goddess of sovereignty, according to them. Uh so they believe in the concept of sovereignty, uh, but when but the way that they believe in it is the concept of personal sovereignty. Uh, they state that they hold the value of sovereignty to be paramount as the basis for authentic spiritual practice and right action on an individual level through the practice of personal sovereignty. When we engage the depth of our own true nature and when we stand with the integrity of a true sovereign, 
We access that numinous power from nature itself and are able to take hold of the authority of our own lives and step into sovereignty. Now, this is a core value I think we all can get behind. You don't have to join uh, the priesthood of the Morgan personal sovereignty and personal responsibility. This statement is really telling. When we engage the depth of our own true nature and when we stand with the integrity of a true sovereign, we access that numinous power from nature itself and we are able to take hold of the authority of our own lives and step into sovereignty. What does that statement mean? It means that when we decide to take responsibility for our lives and move forward with our lives, not only do we are we, are we going to be able to take personal responsibility for the things that we do and for our own success, but we're taking our destiny into our own hands. We are reaching a point in our lives where we can move forward as individuals and, and go after the things we really want to. Uh, the next value, set of core values that they believe in is the warriorship and the spear. Uh, now, they go into a whole spiel about Lu, the god Lu, and, and the Tuatha de Nan. Warriorship is, as a spiritual practice, involves fighting for what you believe in and defending those who can't defend themselves. Now, a warrior's primary function is to defend the community against that which strives to abuse or destroy it uh, with their lives, should that be necessary. Warriorship, however, can also be defined as love in action, fighting for what you value. Uh, as all practitioners of the martial and meditative disciplines know, what you practice in the body, you cultivate in the mind. And when you uh, yoga, the mind becomes supple, centered, and energized. When you practice meditation, the mind becomes clear, calm, and attuned. When you practice other things, such as the fighting arts, the mind becomes resilient, resolute, indefatigable, alive with survival instinct. It's practice that creates strength and kinship, survival skill, and the ability to defend what we love. So this when we talk about warriorship in this concept, this value of warriorship, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be violent. You can simply stand up for yourself, stand up for the things that you believe in or are passionate about. Uh, these, these are great things to value. Of course, they talk about service to the community, uh, service in the sort of, they talk about uh, the power of Service teaches us that true sovereignty is a path of personal sacrifices. We must act from a commitment to the well-being and protection of that which is in our care of concern for ourselves. Uh, then the hospitality. Uh, and this is something that's kind of an old tradition, but one that we, we kind of don't think about anymore. We affirm our kinship with all peoples, regardless of race or ethnicity, and our responsibility to act in respect of that kinship in a way that expresses care and honor toward our fellow beings. And we affirm the connectedness of the living with both the ancestors and whose steps we follow and the descendants who will come after us and inherit the world we make for them. This is the value I want to talk about uh, this priesthood having that I find particularly intriguing. It's interesting that we see these revivals of some of these old gods and goddesses today within these neo-pagan organizations. And so many people are quick to say, oh my gosh, they're going to be demon worshipers. Oh my gosh. Think about the children. 
But when you you listen to some of these core values, this concept of hospitality, as these people are defining it, that's a little bit different than the old and the medieval way of defining hospitality. But nonetheless, uh, you know, this is more or less defined as courtesy and 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 the like. But this idea that affirming your kinship with all peoples, regardless of race, ethnicity, and our responsibility to act in respect to that kinship in a way that expresses care and honor toward all our fellow beings. Affirming the goodness of the living with both ancestors and whom and both the ancestors and whose steps we follow and the descendants those who come after us and inherit the world we make for them. What kind of world do we want to make for those people who come after us? That's the real question uh, that the Morrigan can force us to ask ourselves. I talked about how the Morrigan can be representative of these different steps within life that we take. We, we all have, are on different, we're all on different, we're all at different markers in our journey. We're all at different points in life. Nobody is at the same exact point in life as everybody else. We're all on our own journey and we're all getting there on our own time. But we've all got to reach this realization that we are all people and we're all on a journey. And even though we're all works in progress, it doesn't mean uh, that we're any less important than anybody else and it also doesn't mean we're any more important than anybody else we got to find our own balance that's the real lessons we can learn uh from the morgan now i want to get into this concept of sovereignty before i uh, conclude today talking about the morgan uh it's been a been a very enriching conversation, very refreshing to talk about some stuff like this, very exciting stuff, I think. I think it's fun. Um, but I talked about the concept of sovereignty. Um, sovereignty, just because you have power over something, it's important to remember that having power over something, it goes back to the old Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. When you have power over something, you are responsible for that something. And the Morgan has been attributed with being, having power over the land, having dominion over souls. So she's responsible for these things as well. When we think about this, these core values uh, that, I, that I mentioned uh, that are being brought up by this, this priesthood that's dedicated themselves to the worship of the Morgan today, we all have sovereignty over ourselves, stability for ourselves. And we've got to understand that we have a responsibility not only for ourselves, but to ourselves to be better versions of ourselves. Now let that sink in for a minute. You know, we are all... We, too often we see people we know, and even we ourselves do this. I know I've done it. I can't speak for everybody out there, but I'm I'm almost certain somebody else could relate to this. I think we've all reached points in our lives where we've said, it's somebody else's fault, right? 
I'm in this position and it's this person's fault. But is it really that person's fault or are you just unwilling to take responsibility for your part in all of it? Every single one of us has choices that we can make. We've all got this wonderful thing called a brain. And we use that brain to make choices. We use that brain to enact our will upon the world around us. And when we do these things, when we enact our will upon upon the world around us and we make choices, we're responsible for those choices. We're responsible for our will. What we sow into the world, we're responsible for. Whether it's children, whether it's ideas, literature, whatever. Whatever it is that you bring to the table, you're responsible for it. You have to, and and that includes your gifts as well. Whatever you're good at, you're responsible for what you're good at. Nobody, you have sovereignty over what you're good at. You, nobody can take that away from you unless you let them take it away from you. Nobody can take away your ability to do what you want to do unless you give that away. Now, people would say, well. What if I go to jail? What if, what if I, you know, what if I get captured by somebody or kidnapped? Would you make cho- every choice you make has a, every choice you make has an action as a reaction, just like every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You have an impact on the world around you, and the choices you make. Put you in the situations that affect your day-to-day life. You are in control of your life. And you're responsible for your life. And you can't act like you're not in control of your life and responsible for your life. Because when you do, you're denying your own sovereignty. And that's giving away your freedom. That's giving away your sovereignty. That's giving away your power. No one can take away your personal power unless you give it away. You have all the potential in the world to do anything you want to do. You've got all the personal power you could possibly want. But if you abuse it, if you give it away, if you make bonehead decisions, you're throwing it away. Can learn from the Morgan is that the Morgan never threw away her sovereignty. In every story involving the Morgan, she comes out on top, and she comes out on top because she doesn't let people take away her thunder. She doesn't let people take away her sovereignty. She determines the time and the place when things are going to happen. She determines destiny. She makes destiny. She forges fate for herself. And she forges the fate of heroes. Now, I'm not saying that you yourself can forge the fate of heroes. But you can make your own destiny. Forge your own destiny. And you can make it as glorious and wonderful and beautiful as you want it to be. 
Or you can make it as terrible and miserable and boring and bland and awful as you let it be. But in the end, the one thing that you have to remember is you have sovereignty over your life. You have a responsibility for your life because you have that sovereignty in your own life. I hope you guys have enjoyed today's show. I hope you learned a lot about the Morgan, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to give you guys some text that you can look at, examine, if you wish to do so. I'm going to recommend, again, the Tane Bowl Kuwain. It's a, it's a great uh, great epic. Uh, if you, if Those of you out there, uh, if you've seen the movie Troy, if you've seen, uh, if you've looked at, uh, you know, you've seen movie, you know, Clash of the Titans or Wrath of the Titans, whatever, Immortals, the like. Uh, the Tainbo Kulain reads a lot like the Iliads. Uh, it's it's pretty good read. It's a good story. Uh, you get epic heroes, gods and goddesses going at it. Uh, I mean, it's all you, you can want. Um, you can also take a look the Guide to the Ancient Gods and Legends uh, by Miranda Aldhouse Green. Uh, Myth, Legend, and Romance, an Encyclopedia of uh, Irish Folk Tradition. Um, You can look at John T. Koch's Celtic Culture, a Historical Encyclopedia. I, of course, would uh, recommend you also take a look um, at uh, the guises of the Morgan Irish Goddess of Sex and Battle, Her Myths, Powers, and Mysteries uh, by David and D. Esther Rankin. You can take a look at Feast of the Morgan, a grimoire for the Dark Lady of the Emerald Isle by Christopher Penzak, and uh, Patricia Monaghan's Encyclopedia of Goddesses and Heroines. Uh, It's it's a pretty good read. Um, I would also recommend... um, Where did it go? Uh, Tara Reynolds, The Morgan, Goddess Connections Workbook, and uh, finally, um, The Irish Invasion Myths, Myths and Legends of the Celtic Race uh, by T. Rolison. Good, all good, uh, good, st- good places to start, especially if you're just uh, looking for uh, source material on The Morgan, or if you're just looking to get into some more mythology. If you like mythology, uh, you know, there's just a plethora of good stuff out there to read that will, I mean, people underestimate mythology, but these are the big stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And we can learn so much from those people who came before us. What they thought was important, we might still find some value in. Uh, there's something valuable in it. So that's all I've got for you guys today. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back next week with another interesting figure. Uh, from the from mythology, this one hails from Haiti, though. Very very interesting guy. Goes by the name of Baron Samedi, and Baron Samedi uh, is a death god in his own right. But he likes to party. He's a party animal. Uh, very interesting character. We're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, we're going to talk about him uh, in the context of you know those who worship him. Of the myths and, and stories associated with him. Uh, he's a very interesting figure. Um, 
you know, I, I honestly, I find the, uh, I think you guys will agree I with me when you when you learn a little bit about Baron Sinetti, uh, those of you unfamiliar with him, that he's a rather, he, he's, he's a card. He's a really fascinating guy. He's kind of funny. Uh, but he's also a grim kind of character. He puts, but he's, he's, you know, he's still got a lighter spin on death. Not as heavy as the Morgan. You know, he's a he's he's a guy that likes to party. So, come back, see you guys next Wednesday morning. Uh, we're going to talk about Baron Samedi because death likes to party too, guys. Thanks for listening today. Hope you enjoyed the show. And of course, you can catch me live as well on Sunday morning with straight football talk and this week we've got Ju and Lewis coming to the show uh, very excited we're booked all the way uh, into November with interviews for straight football talk and guys football's back very exciting stuff so hope you'll catch me there with Teddy the Bear Tate uh, live Sunday morning from 9 a.m. Eastern time to 12 p.m. Eastern time um, until then enjoy the rest of your week guys and We'll talk soon. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.